I'm just going to tell you a story, and then we're going to dive right into the scripture here today. And uh, the story isn't going to really make sense until later in the message. That is, if I can figure out how to tie it in, we'll see. Uh, But it'll be a fun story nonetheless. So uh, I was uh, in my 20s and living down in San Diego, and I worked a lot on the weekends. Almost every weekend, I'd go down and work with Homes of Hope, which is one of the missions organizations we really partner with, Youth with a Mission down there. And um, we'd work with these teams that would come in all the time. And there was this one guy, uh, one of the teams we worked in was corporate teams. It was called an organization called Young Presidents. And it was all these CEOs that would come down and bring their families down of, you know, pretty substantial corporations. And uh, so that was a really cool experience. There was this one guy that really liked to bring me down and I'd play guitar and sing and lead worship and uh, it was just a lot of fun. And, and on one weekend, it was a Memorial Day weekend, I was down there, I was leading worship, and then this guy, um, he says, hey, why don't you stick around an extra day? So I was planning on going back up, you know, job, all that. Um, I was a poor missionary, you know, poor kind of missionary kid working a little construction on the side trying to make it in my music business, right? And so uh, he's like, hey, why don't you stick around a uh, extra day. I got something pretty cool we're going to do, and uh, why don't you come with us? And so what this cool thing turned out to be was we got to drive Baja race cars. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it was legit. Not only that, we had the race winner from the Baja 1000 as our tour guide. And this guy, uh, he, he paid for the whole thing. And which was amazing, like this was a super expensive day, just crazy expensive. There is no way I had any business being on this trip. There was no way I would have been able to be on that trip. But he, uh, he invited me to come along, and, uh, and basically I got to walk in, and they treated me like a VIP. Uh, I got emails for years after that of them trying to get me to come down here. Little did they know, I had no money, Right. But I got treated like a VIP because I was with him. I was with him, right? And so I walk in, hey, I'm with him. And it was amazing. I mean, we got to, guys, you'll like this. We got to drive like 75 miles an hour off-road, getting air, dune buggies, Porsche engine. Oh, man, it was a good time. And the only reason I got to do that, um, there was nothing about me as this, you know, 20-something poor struggling musician kid, uh, it was just because I was with him, right? Okay, so just hang on to that in the back of your minds, and we're going to sort of dive right in. And we're going to dive in in Exodus chapter 3. And I'm going to do something I almost never do, which is we're going to read straight through this chapter. And then we're going to come back and highlight some things, because Exodus chapter 3 is really the chapter in Scripture where God really begins to reveal himself at a whole new level to humanity and to his people. Everything that is communicated to us about God after this point assumes that you know this. It assumes that you have a grasp on this. When you hear, you know, John 3.16, one of the most famous scriptures in, in the Bible, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's assuming you understand who that God is. And that comes from this. And that's why this is such a vital chapter. And, and really what you find um, 
we'll get into this in a minute, but your identity is tied up in your idea of God. And so let's read this together, starting in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. And I'm going to do my best to move quick through this, but you know me, a lot of you. I probably will have to pause and comment a little bit along the way. So just, just bear with me here, but we're going to try to kind of go quickly because we have a lot to get through. Exodus 2:23. During that long period, so just to catch you up and, and remind you, uh, Moses, you're like, you can't even get through the first sentence. Four words. All right, I'm going to have to do better. So anyway, but you got to know where we're dropping. If you remember, last week, we left Moses, who was the prince of Egypt. And what we said last week is gifted people, the temptation is to play God instead of wait on God. Moses kills the Egyptian. He ends up being exiled uh, to the desert in Midian. He's in the wilderness. And now he's, it's 40 years. 40 years go by. So it says a long time. And it's been this whole season where he takes the sheep out, he brings the sheep back, he gets married, he has a baby, he names the baby, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land, Gershom. And that's where we are in the story. So there, I'll see if I can do this faster now. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he's a shepherd. Now here's what you got to understand. He's a prince of Egypt, but now he's a what? A shepherd, and shepherds are despised by Egyptians. Can you see this, the place, what God's trying to tell us here about the place that Moses is in in this situation for this long period of time? And it says this, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's a lot of ites right there. But here's something interesting about that uh, is, is up until Israel takes possession of the land, the promised land, there is never an individual people group that is a sovereign state, and there never has been, except for the nation of Israel. Is that kind of an interesting 
uh, little thing. Now, verse nine, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, I think Moses is tracking with him up to here. Now, after he gets over the initial shock and God starts telling him he's about ready to rescue his people, Moses is pumped because, remember, he's a compassionate, courageous guy. We saw that last week. And he wants to see his people rescued. So he's excited at this point. And then God says, and now you go. And Moses is like, "Uh uh-uh. See, Moses had gone through a major shift in identity to get to this point. You think about it. Moses had gone through a shift in identity. He's at a whole new place in life. The dream is gone. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And probably in the back of his mind, he's thinking, plus, I'm wanted for murder in Egypt. 12, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will ask me, what is his name? Then I shall tell them, or then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites. I'll just skip through the rest of those. A land flowing with milk and honey. The elders will listen to you, then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey. God's telling him to be polite here, actually. This is in the Hebrew. It's like, please let us take. So be polite. Uh, Please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Chapter three, Exodus. Now, here's what I have for you. There's five things I want you to write down if you want to take notes today. When it comes to understanding the nature of God as he begins to be revealed to us in this portion of scripture. 
And the first thing is this, and we're going to highlight a couple of these verses as we go along, but the first thing is this, that God sees, God hears, and God cares. He says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. See, up to this point in the, in, in the book of Exodus, God's been primarily at work behind the scenes. He's been setting the stage. But at this point, God's moved with compassion to actually begin to step in and act. And what we see is it's his heart. He sees, he hears, and he cares. We serve a compassionate God. It's one of the first things you see about him. A God who cares about his people. A God who's concerned about injustice. A God who weeps, feels emotions. That's the God we serve. So that's the first thing I want you to write down. God sees, God hears, God cares. The second thing is this. God's timing is rarely our timing. Now let me just ask you, how many of you have discovered that in life? Yeah. God's timing is rarely our timing. Seen that over and over again in different people's lives, that God speaks things to you, it takes years to get, get to him oftentimes. You feel like it should happen right now. God says, not quite yet. And, and just think about that, Exodus 2, 23, during that long period, that long period, the king of Egypt died. So God's setting the scene back here. Moses is gonna be able to go back at this point because the guy who wanted to kill him is, is dead now. But during this time, look what's happening. The Israelites are continuing to groan in their slavery, cry out for help. And it says those cries go up to God. And, and God heard and he remembered his covenant with them. Now, when it says God remembered, it doesn't mean remember in the sense that we think of it in our language. Um, so it doesn't mean remembering it's Valentine's Day. Now, I'm helping you guys, Okay. The connotation in, in the Hebrew is that God decided to act. That's, that's what you see. When you see God remembered them, he, he decided like now is the moment to step in and act. And so this brings up all these questions. Like why do bad things happen to good people? Or, or the deeper version of that, that's like the surface level version, right? The deeper level is if, if God is a good, just God, why does he allow suffering? I mean, it was a long period here. These people were suffering, and another 40 years goes by. And you know what? Here, here's the short answer to that. In, in, in my best pastoral, um, studious statement for you, I don't know. I'm not God. And see, we can, we can take stabs at it. We can think like, well, God, here's the thing. Like, we think, why doesn't God just quit suffering? Why doesn't God stop injustice? Because if he does that, it would violate humankind's free will. And essentially, we'd just be robots. And robots can't love. And have you ever noticed that that sometimes, like, don't you, have you had some family members that maybe have done some lousy things, but you don't really want God to wipe them out, right? Maybe you've done some lousy things. 
And you, what, what did you want from God? Mercy, right? Justice. You, you wanted mercy, not justice in that time. And since you're all still here today, God must not have squashed you out when you did some lousy things, when you acted in lousy ways to other people, right? And so it's this complicated kind of issue, but the short, the short answer is we don't really know why God allows suffering to continue. And that's because we're not God. Um, our timing isn't his. His timing is different, right? But let me just say, for, for some people, this is such a big stumbling block that they swing over to the other side, which is, well, if, if God allows suffering, how can God be a good God? And they come to the conclusion that there must not be a God. And then you've got a whole lot bigger problem if you stop to think about it. Um, here's, what, here's what a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, Milton Steinberg, he said this, and I think it's really insightful. He said, the believer has to account for the existence of one thing, unjust suffering. The atheist has to account for the existence of everything else <laughs> coming from nothing, matter from non-matter. In fact, um, I, I read something on the, you know, the, what do they call it, the particle accelerator in CERN? And there's the scientists that said what they've discovered is there's equal portions of matter and antimatter, and basically they've come to the conclusion that the universe shouldn't exist. So if you're the atheist, you've got to account for that somehow. I think that's a greater leap of faith. All right, so, so that's the first thing. But I, I want to emphasize that during this long period of time, because some of you are in situations in your life where you're just like, is is this ever going to happen? Is what I felt like God spoke to me or God said something, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen. And this is exactly where Moses is at because he had a calling, and now he lands himself in the desert for 40 years, and the dream is dead, and it's gone. And, and here's what you watch. Um, during this time, there's this internal shift in his heart from the prince of Egypt to just a simple dude, just a regular old guy. And there's a humbling that happens here. And something else happens here that I think is really significant, that you get this idea that Moses learns to be content. As you see his response in chapters three and four, he learns to be, he's, he's content. He has, he's become content in the situation that God placed him in. And I don't know how long that took, but I guess it took him years if I had to guess at it. The desert isn't cushy, but Moses, in this process of becoming content with a simple life, it's home, and he learns to deal with it. And, and so many times, often God brings you into a season where you have to learn to be content in that season before he actually brings you to the next season he's calling you into. And there's so many situations in life I, I've seen, it's rarely while we're spinning our wheels in frustration that we get to where God wants us. I'm not saying you don't work hard towards a goal. I'm saying you know the difference between worrying about something, trying to worry something into existence and trying to work hard for something. And lots of you are really good at trying to worry something into happening rather than just contentedly waiting on God. Maybe it's a singleness thing, right? And the desire of your heart 
is to be in a relationship, and it's just not happening yet, right? I don't know what that thing is for you. Maybe it's a thing that God planted on your heart, you know, a career thing, something with, uh, you know, just where you feel like you should be by this point in your life. And I've just noticed this thing in, in my life that almost every time that God plants something, a dream, a vision um, in my heart that we're going to do this, uh, planting a church, for example, five years later, right? But during that time, I came into a, a point where I found a contentedness. And I wasn't striving for it. And some of you are in a place where you are just striving and it's causing you so much anxiety and it's causing you so much internal pressure. And you know what? A lot of times God has to let you walk through that and just come to a place of rest in him and contentment before he gets you to the thing that he wants to get you to. So God's timing is rarely our timing. The third thing is this. God speaks primarily to those who seek to listen. Here's what you see, and this is so cool. The Lord appeared to him in in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Which incidentally, in the Hebrew language, when a name is repeated twice in a row like that, it's a sign of intimacy. So you have Moses, Moses. You have Abraham, Abraham, God says. Jacob, Jacob. Moses, Moses. Samuel, Samuel. Martha, Martha, Jesus says. It's a term of intimacy. And so he calls out to him from the bush, and Moses said, here I am. And here's what's so significant. One commentator puts it like this, and I thought it was so insightful. For nearly every human being, this is how the divine human encounter takes place. God communicates with us after or if we make the effort to notice his presence. I love that one song we sometimes sing, Holy Spirit, and the the one line that says, let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. Let us become more aware of your presence. And I think there's something about this that, man, our lives are so crazy and so busy. Here's, I think, what most of us would do. Number one, you see a burning bush, and that's kind of strange, but how many of us, after you like, look at it and you go, okay, it's not like a major fire threat, how many would pause long enough to see, that's, that's weird, it's not burning up? And see, I think God is doing all kinds of things around us that we don't pause long enough to take notice of. When he says, be still and know that, you're God, know that I'm God, There's this idea that in order for us to experience his presence, we have to actually take time to notice his presence. Take time to lean in to what he's doing. And and with all of the technology in our lives and the noise in our lives and the busyness in our lives, man, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It's a hard thing just to, to lean into what he's doing in the moment. See, God, God wants to be sought after. 
by his people. He says this in Jeremiah 29, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. There's this idea that God is looking for people who will press into him and and those are the people that primarily he's gonna speak to. I just noticed this thing is God, I normally hear from God most, this is really profound, so you might wanna write this down. I normally hear from God most when I listen to him. Anybody else? Yeah, because what's the point? The point is for so many people, the only time you press into God's presence and seek him as if, you know, he had something to say to you is when you have a big deal decision on your plate, right? You're, you're thinking about what college to go to. You're wondering, you know, if... Uh, you're wondering, you know, if you should date that guy. Actually, you should listen to your mom on that. She's probably the one you should listen to. But those are the big deal kind of things we start, like, thinking through, right? And, and you know what's amazing is when we press in so often, God speaks to us. And then in other seasons of our life, have you noticed that you just get going in such a busy rhythm, you just never even stop to seek him? And you look up after a month or two or three and your, your spiritual life is dead and dry and you're like, what happened? You happened. Life happened. You quit seeking him. You quit pressing in. It's been really interesting. I've noticed um, just, just this thing in life of pausing long enough to recognize that God is working in a situation pausing long enough to be attentive to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear, hey, I want you to step in and have a conversation here or why don't you pick up the phone and call this person or why don't you walk across the street and talk to this neighbor and, and give an invitation or ask this person, hey, can I pray for you in the situation you're in? And those are the moments, I think, as you listen to those promptings and you're not just in such a rush or just so preoccupied that you actually pause and listen and obey, I think those are moments when you begin to see God coming through. I, think, I call a lot of those things like things that make you go, hmm. Like sometimes you need to pay attention to those things that make you go, hmm. I had four, uh, four different occasions in about the last three weeks where I had somebody on my heart that I was like, I, I need to connect with. And God literally in random situations brought them across my path. Four times, I'm, and I'm like, hmm, what are you doing here, God? This is interesting, right? You, you got to pay attention to that kind of stuff. God primarily speaks to those who seek to listen to him. And see, this is the idea. You got to cultivate a daily responsiveness to the Holy Spirit, coupled with a strong knowledge of his word because that's where he reveals himself. That's how you know that you're not gonna just be one of those really strange people is that you're anchored in scripture, right? So you understand the difference between his promptings and, and just the too many jalapenos on the pizza the night before. But cultivating a daily responsiveness to the Holy Spirit is so vital in life. Okay. The fourth thing is this. 
that you see in this passage that's so profound is that God defines who God is. And see, this is the difference between our culture and and where they're out here, is we live in an age where we think we can define God as we want him to be. Have you noticed that? All those things that you hear floating around the office, like, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm not really religious, I'm just spiritual, and I don't really think, you know, this about God, or God would never do that, or God just wants me to be happy. All these kind of things that start floating around, um, that's us deciding that we're going to try to define God and whatever image we think we can define him in. You get this idea that Moses, you know, perhaps had heard stories as he, as he grew up about the God of the Hebrews, the ancestral God of the Hebrews. But man, it's been a long, dark period. Nobody's heard from that God in a long time. Even though he's active behind the scenes, right? The whole time. And so Moses really is, well, well, who are you? What's your name? And in Hebrew thinking in ancient Near East, the name was a lot more significant than just, you know, hello, my name's Tim, right? It wasn't just a tag. The name was filled with significance and meaning. And it was actually your character of who you were. It's, so Moses is asking him, what's your essence? Who are you? What are you all about? And, and this is so profound. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, if, this is a big theological word, but I think it's important, an important concept to understand when it comes to God, that God defines who God is. And so God reveals to us in Scripture who he is. He reveals to us in the person of Jesus who he is and what his character is like. And so one of the big things we see is God is transcendent. What that means is that God exists outside of space and time. Uh, uh, Isaiah says it this way, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And see, 3,500 years ago, this is what's so amazing about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is, is when this was written, in this ancient period of time, this was so revolutionary because there was really not a concept of a singular God who was the creator of everything, a one true God. Every people group kind of had their own God, and they followed that God, but they didn't think the other gods weren't real. They just hoped theirs was more powerful. And what God's going to do in a couple chapters is systematically show how he, he is the one true God and the gods of Egypt are not gods at all. Because every one of the plagues is tied to one of the gods that Egypt worshipped. So he's going to deal with that. But he's transcendent. He exists outside of space and time. The, another way to say this is, I will be what I am. I am who I am. Um, you could translate this, I will be what I will be, or I be what I be, literally. And those are all valid translations of the, of the Hebrew in there. But the whole idea is just, I am. I, I am. I was. I will be. I am ultimate reality. And this blew Moses' mind, I'm sure. 
and it would blow yours and mine too, even hearing it now. We have such a hard time wrapping our heads around this, right? Of a creator who exists outside of space and time. A creator who created a universe so vast, we cannot even fathom the size of it. Of someone who has always been pre-eternal, pre-existing, and will always be. A God who knows the future, right? A little while later, he says, hey, Moses, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go, and Pharaoh, you know, you're going to have to ask him pretty please, let me take the people out, because um, I'm not just going to smite him with plagues. I'm just. So I'm going to give him a chance. But I'm God. I know he's not going to do that. In fact, one of the great Jewish rabbis, Akiva, said this, all is foreseen, yet free will is granted. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So God somehow says, yes, you have to choose me, and yet I know everything. Nothing takes me by surprise. Yes, you choose, choose you today whom you will serve, but I know what you're going to decide. And yet the decision is yours to make. Kind of blows your mind a little. Smarter people than us have been arguing about these things for thousands of years. The Jews didn't have a problem embracing two things that were seemingly contradictory because they understood um, God is so much more, God is so much greater we can't comprehend even, right? And so God is transcendent. He's beyond. And then he's also another big theological term, and I thought I'd give you one that's easier. Among us, the theological term is imminent. He's among us. He's actively involved in his creation. Colossians said, in him all things hold together. He sustains all things by, the word, by his powerful word. In other words, he is intimately involved in his creation, but a very important understanding is that he is not his creation. He exists outside of creation, and yet he's intimately involved in his creation. This is a Christian, a Judeo-Christian way of seeing the universe. And it's God that reveals it to us. In fact, even today, typically people go one of two different directions with the whole um, idea of God. And one of them is pantheism, which is sort of the whole universe is God-animated. God is in everything, but then God is the... How many of you have somebody you know, close to you in your circle, uh, who said... I just asked the universe. Yeah, you hear it all the time now, don't you? Just throw that one out to the universe. And that's the idea of so, somehow God is the universe nature. It's all sort of one thing. If you saw Avatar, you remember that movie way back uh, a while ago, and they just sort of plugged their weird tail into the thing, and now they're all sort of plugged into God. Yeah. But that's a whole, a whole variety of Eastern religions in the world believe that but that's not a Christian way of viewing God. God is, exists outside of his creation, and yet he's active. He's personally involved, intimately involved with his creation. And the, the other thing we see about this is he's personal. If you want to go to the next slide, it goes on to say this. Um, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, or Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, it's the vowel consonants, the equivalent in English of the Hebrew. And I'd try to say the Hebrew, but I'm probably going to say it wrong. My wife will correct me after church. 
Yod Hey Vav Hey. Is that right? Okay. I said it right. Thank you. <laughs> Can always count on the front row. This is God's name. See, God, is, God has a name. He's personal. He's present within space and time. He's personally involved. He draws close to us. He has a name. In fact, this name is, is over 7,000 times it's in Scripture. And this is so, so, should be so encouraging to you. That God is personal. God personally cares for you. God personally cares for you. And here's the cool thing. As he begins to unfold who he is, a little bit later in Exodus, he'll say this. I am the Lord Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty or El Shaddai. That's another name of God. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And see, what's happening is God's unfolding. God is working in a new way with this people because Yahweh will now begin to dwell with his people, among his people. He will begin to dwell with them. He will go with them. His presence will go with them in a very unique way. And down the road, the prophets will prophesy a time where Yahweh will be with us. Emmanuel. God with us. And what we celebrate every year when we celebrate the, the incarnation around Christmas is that God became flesh. He took on flesh. That God, the Son of God, Jesus, took on flesh. In fact, Jesus says this profound thing. He's having an argument with the Pharisees because they do that a lot. And the Pharisees, this is kind of the way to pick a fight. You probably shouldn't say this to somebody if you want to have a, a, a rational conversation. They say, you have a demon. Yeah, not a very good way to have a polite conversation with somebody, right? And then they go back and forth, and, and they ask him, what, you, what you're saying, you're saying you're equal to Abraham? And Jesus says this profound thing. He's, he's like, you, you're saying you're older than Abraham? Like, you're crazy, Jesus. And Jesus says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And it's like somebody set a grenade off. And if you have any question or doubts about who Jesus was claiming to be, here's, here's how the people that heard him right then saw it. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away to the temple grounds. And so God, progressively throughout the scriptures, begins to show us more and more of who he is. But this is where it really begins to unfold, right here in Exodus chapter 3. And the last thing you can write down if you're writing down things today is this. God invites us to anchor our identity in him. He invites us to anchor our identity in him. You see, when Moses, who now has had a major identity shift, he's no longer the confident prince of Egypt. He, he has fully shifted in his mind to just a shepherd in the desert. And so he asks a very humble question. He says, 
Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And this is so cool. Because God doesn't answer him with, well, let me, we get it. We, Moses, we need to build your self-esteem up. You're, Moses, I planted you in Pharaoh's household. You had the finest education. Come on, buddy. Yeah, you're, you're a little out of shape. We'll whip you back into shape. We'll, we'll give you a little beard trim there. That's getting a little out of control. You know, we'll wax your muscles a little so you look a little better for the Egyptians. But yeah, remember who you are. I'm smart, I'm strong, I'm powerful, doggone it, people like me. Now, God doesn't say any of that. In fact, God doesn't base any of it on who Moses is because Moses knows, I can't do what you're asking me to do. And that's the point. God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. And see, here's the thing when it comes to identity. And I want to invite Winston up. We're going to close with a song tonight. When it comes to identity, you can either place your identity in who God says you are through Jesus, through faith and trust in Jesus. See, Jesus instructs us to pray, our Father in heaven. Jesus shows us how you can have a relationship with God through faith in, in him. And how your identity then can become rooted in that. And anytime your identity shifts from being rooted in who Jesus is to whatever persona you have, and every one of us now, if you, it's interesting, we live in an age of a carefully crafted public persona, don't we? Where you have things, um, you know, you post, you're thinking, who's liking this, who's doing that? And it's this very unsettling pressure you deal with. And some of you, you've placed your identity in the fact that you're, you're strong, you're successful, you're, you know, you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and your identity is in that and you just feel a constant pressure that you gotta, you gotta keep it up. You gotta take it to the next level. You gotta be competent, right? Because that's your identity. Others of you have placed your identity um, perhaps in, in the way you look. Maybe it's in being a mom. And see, Moses has had an identity shift where he no longer just identifies now as the prince of Egypt. He understands, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But he's not nothing. Because in a, in a real short time, he's gonna walk in before the most powerful man on earth and he's not going to be there as Moses. He's going to be there as, hey, I'm with him. I'm with Yahweh. I'm with Yahweh. That's how I said my story there, starting with Tyen. I'm with him. And see, if your identity can switch from, from whatever you're placing it in to being with him, to being his child, that'll help you in so many areas of life where you feel insecure, afraid, trapped.
And he says, you could be adopted. Your identity can be as a son or daughter of God. See, this is who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture. He cares, he knows, he sees what you're going through. He's personal. He wants to relate to you. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to seek him. He says you will be found by him. He says you can be a child of God. Not because of anything you've done, but because you place your faith and trust in him. And so if you want to stand right now, I just want to give you an opportunity before we sing, and then we'll, we'll sing for a minute. I'll come back up and close this. But if anyone in the room, you, you have not taken that step of saying, Jesus, my identity is going to be in you. I want to give you the opportunity to do that. You can just pray a simple prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I can't get to, you, to God on my own. And so I want to put my faith and trust fully in you. I want to take on the identity that you give me. Forgive me, welcome me into your family. Let's sing and I'll come back up and pray for us in just a moment. Father, thank you for my friends. Lord, I just pray that, that you would root them and anchor them in who you are. Lord, that we would have a proper view of you, that we would have an awe for you. You are holy, you are awesome. You are transcendent, and yet you care to draw near to us. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for caring enough to step into humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.